Hello, everyone. Thanks for tuning in. During the coronavirus pandemic, one key area of focus is the development of an effective vaccine. As with all vaccines and drugs, there is a long process of discovery, development, validation, manufacturing, and distribution of the product. In the life sciences industry, research is becoming more expensive and takes more time. Let's just consider a trend called Irum's Law, and this trend states that the cost of developing a new drug roughly doubles every nine years. My guest Rama Rao discusses how clinical trials can contribute to that cost, especially during a pandemic. He has built a startup called BlockCube that uses the Hyperledger platform to secure data for clinical trials and aims to improve the speed and quality of clinical research. Rama is an industry veteran with over 30 years of experience in the industry, having spent most of his time at Eli Lilly and Novartis. I really enjoyed speaking with Rama, and I hope you all enjoy this episode. Remember, the Health Unchained podcast is for informational and entertainment purposes only, and we are not providing any sort of legal, financial, or medical advice. Please do your own research and due diligence before making any important decisions related to these matters. Hi, I'm your host, Ray Dogan, and welcome to Health Unchained. On this show, I'll be speaking with healthcare entrepreneurs, thought leaders, and executives who are using blockchain technologies to revolutionize healthcare. These innovators are building the distributed infrastructure and diverse communities required for a trusted, secure, and decentralized healthcare ecosystem. Enjoy the show. What is blockchain? blockchain. What is blockchain? The doctor will see you now. Welcome to Health Unchained. Today's guest is Rama Rao, CEO of BlockCube, which is a startup he started in 2017 that uses blockchain technology to improve clinical trials operations and research data management. He spent over a decade at Novartis leading their finance side of the house. I first met Rama in Austin, Texas at the Digital Transformation in Health 2020, and that was in February. I still can't believe how much has changed in only a few months. Rama, thank you so much for joining me today. I'm looking forward to this conversation. Me too. Thanks so much, Ray, for the invitation. And I'm really excited to share uh, bits and pieces of the journey that hopefully should make a huge difference in to patients in the future. Absolutely. And I think to get started, can you just give a quick background of yourself so the audience has some context about who you are and what your background is? Sure. Um, I'm a former industry executive with about 27, 28 years in it. Uh, my formative years were with Lilly and, uh, and then with Novartis. Um, that was post-MBA. Uh, like you, I'm an engineer by initial training. I'm a mechanical engineer mm-hmm. and gave up uh, engineering in, the, in, in order to be, you know, experience a lot more the world. So left India after my engineering degree and management degree, came to the Middle East, became a banker, then went to INSEAD, uh, which is a business school near Paris, uh, set up by Harvard Business School and uh, graduated uh, with an MBA and then went on to work in the pharma industry at Eli Lilly in Geneva. And that was a journey which is both exciting, adventurous, challenging, but even more importantly, rewarding because uh, we were a couple of steps removed from patients and finding solutions for patients. Um, that's the reason why I've stayed in it uh, so far. Yeah, that's interesting. That that kind of shift from engineering or you know mechanical engineering, and then you went into banking a little bit in the finance world. 
what made you feel like healthcare was where you wanted to be? Well, there were a couple of uh, things that motivated me. Um, I've had personal experience with, uh, a, you know, neuroscience and a brain tumor. So after my MBA, I felt that I would like to stay in finance, which I loved, but in the pharma industry to use my skills. Hmm. Uh, the second thing is that the bit which is very similar to finance and engineering is it really is problem solving at the end of the day. It's not a matter of counting numbers, but putting it together efficiently, whether it's process efficiencies or people efficiencies. And after this time, you become a management leader, then it becomes a lot more broader than that. But what does not go away is an ability to find solutions to people's issues uh, rapidly and efficiently. Hmm. So I know, you know, you spend a lot of time also in the clinical research side of things, and that's something you've been working on with your current company, Blockcube. But, you know, I'm wondering, how does the experience at Pharma shape your understanding of clinical research innovation? You know, a couple of assignments that were, I think, um, very important in this whole process. One was when I was the uh, chief financial officer for Novartis Pharma in Canada and also in Russia. And you could see at close quarters some of the challenges that were taking place in the execution of uh, strategies. But even more, in between the two, I was the global head of clinical development finance for Novartis Oncology and uh, had a, you know, a seat at the table in some of the most critical decisions that were being taken on the portfolio. And I guess I'm one of the few uh, finance guys or leaders who have actually gone into a clinical trial site and operationally seen how a monitor monitors a trial, how a site physician conducts a trial. And as I watched all those processes, I realized that uh, there's something not right. Hmm. And I brought that out in a, in a keynote address in Philly in, in 2012 on a clinical trial budgeting conference when I asked a simple question. As an engineer, we all know what Moore's law, where, you know, the size and processing capacity and costs are all going in sync. And I wondered why that didn't happen in clinical trials. If you look at drug development, or even if you look at the cost of a new drug, when I joined the industry, it used to cost approximately $250 million. Now the figure is like $2.5 billion. <laughs> and our industry is spending almost $100 billion uh, a year, which is almost a trillion dollars in a decade. And that figure seems to be just going up and up. It's the opposite of Moore's law. <laughs> it, that's why I call it an Irum's law in a way. <laughs> and Jim Ace, uh, I think Jim Nasser, sorry, was the person who pointed that out when I was presenting it at uh, in Geneva, the Geneva University Hospital, Irum's law. And my vision for Blockcube and all of us as professionals is how do we move this from Irum's law to Moore's law in the clinical drug development uh, industry? <laughs> That's interesting. You know, Jim is actually, he was on my show as well. He, yeah, um, I saw that. Yeah. I saw that. Very impressive guy. Yeah. I saw that. And uh, we had a great chat, actually. He was quite impressed by the system that we had built. Very and cool. I would plan to talk to him. You know? Yeah, let's kind of kind of talk more about how you started the company, Blockcube, sure, and what the sure. original value proposition was for you. Sure. So, you know, um, Ray as I was sitting in Russia and thinking of coming back to stateside, 
I was clear I wanted to be an entrepreneur. So I was in a biotech company also a short period of time. And I decided that I'd like to focus in the clinical trials process. And I basically looked at all the issues that were there and said it deputitiously. I was also researching blockchain because as an engineer, you know, the cryptography and all that stuff sounded pretty cool to me. This I'm talking 2015. And as 2016 came along, uh, I kind of had a, an aha moment where some of the major pain points in clinical trials could be addressed by uh, what was loosely called blockchain technology. Mm-hmm. Now, having said that, if you looked at the scenario in October 2016, nobody talked about clinical trials in blockchain. So when I would talk about clinical trials in blockchain, some of my peers and some people who I respected very much sort of gave me a quizzical look like, Rama, why don't you just go work as a CFO in a biotech company and have a good life, you know, (laughs) (laughs) and thinking of starting off as an entrepreneur and, you know, all that, uh, the thorns that come with it. So primarily, if you look at the whole clinical trial process, a very complex one. And then I realized if I wanted to be an entrepreneur, I'd like to also build some skill set. So I did a lean uh, startup course at Rutgers. And then I realized the area that I would like to focus in is the site-related processes. So Hmm. if you look at a general clinical trial, it starts off with kind of like a hypothesis of a problem that has to be fixed. You know, Alzheimer's disease is affected by X, Y, Z reason, or this form of cancer has, you know, ABC pathways, and how do we fix it? That goes to the next stage of somebody developing a clinical development plan, and then somebody builds a protocol, then somebody gets the patients organized, then the site, and then the data, et cetera. That was too huge. That was like curing world hunger. So we decided that we'd only focus on the site-related aspects, you know? Mm -hmm. So when a person comes into a site and when the person leaves, that is the process that we would focus on initially. Okay. Now, within this area, there were four pain points that we were looking at, or maybe five. The first is if you see clinical trial management software systems, it's a $10 billion industry and there's a plethora of systems. Mm -hmm. So we felt that having multiple systems is suboptimal in many cases. So we wanted to build an integrated system. The second pain point was the absence of real time data. So I joke and say in many cases, when you're doing a clinical trial, it's a bit like driving a car where someone tells you the speed at which you're traveling a day later and how much gas you've consumed a week later or two weeks later. Guy like me in the finance department run around and get that data. And so we wanted to display both the patient activity and the dollars spent simultaneously in a real-time basis. The third aspect was the issues of data integrity. Now, as you saw, as you may have heard from the recent issue with the Lancet and the New England of Journal of Medicine's article retraction on hydroxychloroquinine, that basically started off with data recording issues and nobody could say, you know, what is right is not. The doctors knew it is not right. And so Lancet pushed through with the retraction. And that's not just it. There was a very large pharma company that actually got an approval for a drug that cost two and a half million dollars. And when they did they looked at some of their early stage uh, clinical data, they found something was not right. And then they had to go back to the FDA and say, we, there's an oops moment. 
So data integrity was the third pain point we wanted to address. The fourth one was the whole thing around the site, which accounts for about 26 to 30% of all costs in a clinical trial. And then the last thing was in this whole process, we wanted to put a smart contract driven solution, which would automate and basically um, optimize some of the suboptimal intermediaries in the process. So in clinical trials, for example, there are hordes of monitors checking and checking the managed check, et cetera, et cetera. And we said, well, uh, the blockchain lends itself to very elegantly to all those four parts. The data integrity is tackled because of the data immutability for blockchain. The linkage with cryptography basically makes it that 20 years from now, if the FDA says, tell me what happened in your phase one study at this stage, we can do that. The ability of linking up the cloud iPad or iOS or Android platform, the tablet platforms, can make remote trials a reality. And because that's housed in a structure, the governance is not an issue. And finally, we did something new, which most people don't have. And that's why we call our system a clinical trial management and financial system, mm -hmm. because we integrated a financial module in it. What most people don't know is that uh, there's a white paper by, published by the US Society for Clinical Research Sites that pointed out that physicians and, are, tend to get paid after three to four months. And that's kind of really difficult if somebody is running a very simple operation. And two thirds of all doctors are considered to be naive. That means they're doing a trial for the first time, you yeah. know? So if you're trying to run a small business and you have this late payments, you can, be, you can imagine on thin margins and cash flows, it's a real issue. So the blockchain lent itself through the smart contract and a peer-to-peer -peer payment solution to a very, uh, what we think is a very innovative solution to address that. And I'll talk, and that's why we called it a C2TA. So our value proposition basically is saying that we want to accelerate clinical trials by integrating systems, providing data in real time for clinical operations at, personnel in life science companies, which means right from a hospital to a biotech or pharma company, and uh, basically ensure data integrity uh, and appropriate governance, along with remote trial monitoring, which is so critical in the current COVID situation where patient safety is concerned. Absolutely. I think everyone would agree that faster clinical trials, especially now with uh, COVID-19, would be a great help to patients, really society in general. So I definitely agree with you there. How big is the team right now, Blockcube? So um, my finance DNA has caused me to be very uh, conservative mm -hmm. over here. So basically we will have a very small fixed cost footprint and we're working with outsourced people all over the place. I have an IT team uh, partnered with Cinezip Texas and there are about 10 people there. Then I have a validation unit, which is partnered with another outsourcing provider in California. And then what I did, unlike a lot of other people, I have a board of advisors where almost everybody has an MD or PhD except for me, which will give me operational advice. You know, So let's say I'm in the process of choosing an advertising agency. One of my advisors who's a marketing expert joins me and helps me. And my whole intent is, uh, and I'm glad because this was the model I built before COVID, I basically want to get to a healthy system of uh, revenues or uh, before we start, uh, you know, expanding the team.
but that has not caused any gaps in terms of execution efficiency or operational momentum because of the structure. Uh, my outsourcing IT provider, the guys there are joined at the hip and, uh, you know, they, in fact, on LinkedIn, they will also call themselves BlockCube uh, because of that reason, you know. They see the passion and the reason why we're doing what we're doing, which is going away from a classic B2C play, you know. Is the company, is it a C corporation or what kind of? Yeah. Mm -hmm. So that's a great point also. You know, we started off as an LLC. And once okay. we got our POC kind of uh, in place and we realized it had uh, legs, mm -hmm. um, we then built a Delaware C Corp out of it. Got it. So all that, actually, we just finished three years. We started off on 7th of July, 2017. And, Congrats. Uh, thank you. <laughs> You're one of the longest running healthcare blockchain companies, by the way. So <laughs> that is true. a huge accomplishment. <laughs> Actually, you know, it's interesting. I was speaking to somebody who Hyperledger and I said, I must be the only guy who built a POC on version 0 0.6 in Hyperledger Fabric. Hmm. And they was, took us, was pretty startled and said, oh my God, really? You did it on version 0 0.6? I said, yes. You've been very structured and meticulous how we built our product. <laughs> That's fantastic. Um, and we'll get into using Hyperledger Fabric and like the protocol sure. you use a little bit later as well when we sure. talk more technically. Um, well, that's fantastic. And I would like to ask you why I use blockchain in healthcare, but I feel like, you know, yeah. most of my audience would probably already have an answer <laughs> yeah. unless you have something you want to share specifically well, on that. I think, I think uh, in the area of clinical trials, um, you know, everybody talks about blockchain in healthcare as a given, but it's not really a given from a customer perspective. Mm. People should keep in mind our customers generally risk averse. In fact, even the best of innovations take over three, four years to penetrate. But once they get past those barriers, they stay in place for about 10 to 13 years. You know, So that's one aspect. Because after all, we're dealing with patients' lives over here. Sure. So that's uh, something that is critical. The beauty, I think, of blockchain, which will be really beneficial, is those five key points, data immutability, you know, the fact that you have, uh, you know, uh, you're resistant to multi-vector system of uh, cyber attacks because well, you've got a distributed ledger. And that's happening yeah, now, right? We have right. lots of, um, you know, reports that Russian hackers are getting right. access to data from the U.S. Right. systems. Right. There you go. Yeah. And so that's the other thing. So, in fact, I was talking to, let's say, the president of a very large uh, clinical trial software company. And he was a little skeptical of the benefits of blockchain. And I said, well, you know, your data right now is in a Fort Knox. I don't dispute that you guys will be straight. But there'll be no shortage of people who will try to access it and hack it in. Mm -hmm. The question is, when you're doing a clinical trial, if somebody hacks and disables a portion, wouldn't you like to have a distributed ledger structure so your momentum doesn't flow? And, of course, your data is safe. Mm -hmm. So that's the, the part, you know, of it. The other part I think is also equally important is it lends itself to the current technologies of, you know, remote trials, which is like using an iPad-based system, for example. So you're turning around the, the paradigm, uh, which was patients would come to a site. Now, by the way, most people don't realize that only 4 to 8% of cancer patients actually participate in a trial. When you get to rural, let's say rural Virginia, nobody's going to fly down from rural Virginia to MD Anderson at Houston in order to do a trial. So until we take the trials to a patient, and that is something what we're doing. So the cloud technology, when combined with distributed ledger technology and with electronic data capture and an iPad, 
is has the potential to revolutionize this whole process. Yeah, so I'm thinking when you're saying remote monitoring, are you also incorporating some sort of video or telehealth conferencing tools yeah. in that process in your application, or is that a separate entity? Because I know that's a whole other world as well. Yeah. I work in telehealth, and I know how um, complex it can get. So you're exactly right. So we wanted to get a balance. We didn't want to get into telehealth and telemedicine because that is not our cup of tea. And again, because the lean startup methodology, we want to be focused. Having said that, in our basic uh, version one, we were able to invoke things like FaceTime, Skype, as well as other tools. What we will be doing is uh, in our version two, which is going to be launched very soon, is going to have one of those tools there so that if there's a need for a peer-to-peer -peer consult, you know, mm -hmm. that would be possible. If there's a need for somebody to, you know, doctor at a site, let's say in West Virginia to talk to, is the clinician who is running a clinical trial at the headquarters in New York at Pfizer, for example, they'd be in a position to then talk face to face, you know. So it is not telemedicine per se, but it is using uh, teleconsulting and telecommunications um, in the current yeah. environment. So I have a question for you here that might, I don't want it to be controversial, but how do you think the government is handling the COVID-19 <laughs> response so far? And if you have any advice for our leaders? <laughs> so, uh, uh, you know, to be honest, Ray, I think I'm too small to be going out giving advice to the leadership. And there are lots of wiser, brighter, smarter people than me. <laughs> Having said that, uh, you know, when the pandemic was at its uh, acute sense in New Jersey, I did uh, reach out to the New Jersey governor's office and proposed a pandemic tracking software system based on our blockchain structure. Because we've already done a beta test where we have patient records. We also wanted to link it together with a contact tracing and a caregiver's module, you know, and bundle it together. The beauty of using a blockchain-driven system is once you enter the data wherever it is, it is infallible and it is you know uncorruptible and so then it becomes a little resistance to uh, censorship efforts of governments wherever they might be that's a good you point <laughs> as you saw also there was this uh, case that you read in the media about somebody in florida who was you know so coming back to your actual question i think uh, there is a philosophical debate which is one challenge which is the famous livelihood versus life debate there is a second which i would argue which is the system solutions because that's goes hand in hand and the third is the execution of a public health strategy um i think in my uh, ambit if a government wishes to have a censorship resistant pandemic tracking software in real time, Blockcube could have an answer. Hmm. Okay. What about the new decision to send lab data or, you know, COVID testing data to uh, health and human <laughs> services instead of the CDC? So uh, that's also another tough call. Um, if you go back to what blockchain is about, uh, Dr. Alex Kahana from Consensus Health is also an advisor in our, and he's been, uh, in a way, a form of a mentor also. At a recent webinar, he basically said, uh, blockchain is really the software of trust. Mm. The issue that we are struggling with is not with its CDC or HHS. 
it is who do we trust more and when do we trust it you know mm-hmm. and in the absence of a uh, uh software solution that will always be viewed with skepticism by people on both sides so whether it's tomato or tomato you know we really don't know what is more important is if we assume that uh, which i see no reason not to that they will be very diligent top notch scientists in both groups doesn't really matter with cdc or hhs as long as we're getting the right data yeah no i think i tend to probably agree i just it's so interesting how it gets politicized in the news true. that's true and i think it's also politicized because uh, you know there is a uh, institutional history associated with each entity and in one case there is alignment globally actually that what comes from the cdc is scientifically accurate politically it's a political advice etc et mm-hmm. politically neutral etc and the minute you get to something which is a department of an administration there is a concern invariably that will that administration or not will that will that department be giving you know a political scientifically driven advice and that's really the challenge right now you know interesting again one of trust <laughs> yeah again <laughs> Welcome to the Health Unchained News Corner. The life sciences industry continues to develop new immunotherapies that can specifically treat a patient based on their personal genes and diagnosis. A recent partnership was announced on July 9th, 2020 between Transgene, a French biopharma company, and Hypertrust Patient Data Care, a blockchain-based supply and data chain company. Emerging personalized treatments have a massive need for trustworthy and decentralized solutions due to the strong cross-company collaborative nature of the production process. The announcement states Transgene's first individualized immunotherapy product candidate is based on the MyVac technology. It is currently evaluated in two ongoing clinical trials, including patients in Europe and in the USA. This virus-based therapeutic vaccine encodes neoantigens, patient-specific mutations, that are identified and selected using state-of-the-art artificial intelligence capabilities. MyVac-based products are designed to stimulate the patient's immune response, to recognize and destroy tumor cells based on their own mutations. This individualized immunotherapy is developed specifically for each patient. Eric Kemenyor, TransGene's chief scientific officer, explained, Blockchain technologies are a perfect tool to ensure that the patient's genetic data are protected while ensuring that all the interventions of our partners are both smooth and tracked. Developing new clinical protocols for personalized medicine is one of the toughest supply and data chain problems facing the industry, and it's great to see that blockchain technologies are beginning to be tested at the enterprise level. And now back to the show with Rama Rao, CEO of Blockcube. So let's get into how the user experiences block cube so talk about it from the patient's perspective and the provider and then also the researchers sure so uh we did two beta tests uh, last december and in uh, january you know 
it took a lot of time to get it together because as i said the industry is a very risk averse and until covid happened nobody wanted to worry about uh, uh speed in trials or accelerating tr- clinical trials we were basically given a diabetes study an observational study in india to be done by the college of medicine over there now most people don't know but diabetes is a pandemic uh in india there are almost 95 million patients of diabetes That's which is almost so many 10%. so many delicious desserts in india but yeah, go ahead <laughs> i don't know about that <laughs> but yeah there the be as that as it may you know so they were planning an observational study and they had the classic you know paper and excel etc kind of approach and what they were basically planning 850 patients and they planned to get the data gathering piece done in 12 months because they had to visit every house and track the person and take data from the person so we offered our solution and we took about 6 weeks to build our software modified for them and we were given 150 patients and we completed it in 12 days you know so even if we assume that the protocol had an element of overestimation and let's say it was 100% so they wanted to win 6 months where is 6 months and where is 2 months so the benefit which the uh, the pi the saw the physician who was the head of community medicine basically saw the a few benefits and her testimony is on our website also the first one is that you know you can really do an interim analysis with with this data because it's really comprehensive and interim analysis as we know in clinical trials are becoming very critical to be sure you know so that's one part going back to the point i said about real time data and uh, efficiencies the second thing what she really liked was that where while the guy was visiting a house she could see on a geotag on the dashboard where exactly he was visiting hmm. now that design was made because we i had a conversation with the folks at the who and they talked about having a need where if the person is the patient is in one village and the site coordinator or whoever is taking the data is in another village they want to be sure the guy is not filling it up in his or her village and is actually traveling to the next village so we provide that in the dashboard we geotag it hmm. so every day she could do a quality check that the person went to the right house with the right patient and got the right data you know sure the third one was we are tracking informed consent now you might be aware that uh, in fda's audit uh, failures of informed consent are something like the number 3 or number 4 you know so what we did was in our design we did said we don't want to just focus on the c the consent part but be sure on the i part so we did three things one is when the person is uh, you know the patient is there there's an otp being sent out a one time password which identifies that individual as the patient on the trial you know because we got the data to start with the second thing was it was assigned with an apple pencil on the ipad and that went into the blockchain and that was an english statement and the local language statement in addition we did one audio recording which I noticed the first was for that yeah that was and really cool that, i thought that was really cool also we thought when we were building it together i wasn't too sure but the uh, the pi then was telling me personally when i visited in december that she then felt confident 
that the dashboard which showed the informed consent was really the actual informed consent. And then the last thing was because we integrated some systems, she, the guys also found that um, if you see in a clinical trial, very often you get queries and queries are a very expensive process of resolution. In our case, because of the structure we set up with the software, the guy could go through the interview completely and get it 100% right. In the other process, they would realize they've either forgotten or they not understood the response, and they would have to make multiple visits to get it clarified. All that got taken away, and that is exactly the sort of efficiency. So from the supervisor, governance... Quick question done, yeah? about the audio yeah. uh, e-consent. So... Um, for the audience, basically, Blockcube is able to share an audio recording of the explanation to the patient of what they're mm -hmm. agreeing to. And then the patient, using their own voice, agrees to it and says, yes, I want to be part of this trial. Uh, and then they get, that gets recorded. Is that recorded on the blockchain or how does that, is that audio recording, is that in a database or what's the... So, so currently, we've got that recorded onto a database. Okay. Our plan is to record the yes in the blockchain just a so binary right the yes or no okay yeah right perfect so thank you uh, so that's the initial model and again uh, we just didn't know how it would work out because uh, we wanted to just test out different methodologies and uh, we've we've got our basic model does have a side chain to handle such things and that was our plan right now so coming back to your earlier thing so the guy who was actually taking the data like the fact that he had to do only one visit, data was of top-notch quality, and uh, he could complete a study and output the CSV file to his statistical database. The supervisor was clear about the governance, knew real-time data, and could track uh, the progress. So she was also very happy and satisfied. So, and then when now it comes into the database, I think they know at least at this 150 records. There's no issue whatsoever. It's totally clean and sanitized. And they can speed up the analysis based on that. So those were the two key stakeholders that were there. Our second beta test was slightly different. It was a cancer and community health screening camp that took place again in India. And we were basically testing the ability for it to be blockchain, our blockchain system, to work with speed. We actually did 65 patients in six hours. And every hour, those 10 patients' data was being recorded and displayed on a monitor outside the camp, you know, on a TV monitor. So people could see the whole throughput that was taking place. And in a way, we have now created an electronic health record for those 65 patients that will last them for their lives, technically speaking. Right. You know? so, <laughs> so those are kind of like, so the uh, physician who's managing the health camp was also very thrilled. And by the way, all this has been also captured independently by HIT Labs in a white paper, which is a kind of like a virtual certification of our product uh, done pretty recently, you know, a couple of weeks back. And they interviewed all the people in India. They interviewed our advisors to get a holistic perspective on our system. No, that's really great. I think the like having a third party organization review uh -huh. your product, review your platform, uh -huh. I think that's critical for building trust in the community for people to know that it is reliable, it is real, and it's not a, uh -huh. a scam as many um, other, you know, healthcare, sure. or just blockchain companies might be doing. But sure. that's really or, awesome. I love it. Or it's like vaporware or something like that, where people say, this is what we can do. Right. 
but we are showing this is what we have done exactly and this is why it works <laughs> thanks for sharing that um i kind of want to learn a little bit more about the architecture or the specs sure. of the platform itself so sure. for example can you talk to me about data privacy and your encryption security sure. that you use sure so uh, i want to be a little careful here for two reasons one is we've actually written up a paper which is uh, being sent into a leading magazine to be published so it's going through a peer review process so um, i'm constrained a little bit in terms of what i can disclose today and secondly because some of this we are still having internal discussion on how much we can talk about it outside because we are amongst the first who have built this up having said that here are some broad parameters that we are working with the first is we took a conscious decision to go with hyperledger fabric you know we wanted open source software and that was uh, i think a fairly wise choice now when i think about it because just uh, yesterday i was talking to let's say uh, a leading person in a leading pharma company where they are doing have a consortium approach to blockchain and he stressed it a couple of times that they only want to work with open source software which is what fabric really is coming through the third thing is that uh, given my experience in the pharma industry i wanted a very strong private permission blockchain so it would be controlled all the time you know mm -hmm. and then we have let hyperledger fabric basically guide us through some of the cryptographic protocols etc that is there now in addition what we have tried to do is again um, in my previous experience there was a uh, unfortunate situations where people have misused uh, privileges uh, so to avoid that the access to the system is driven by uh, the obvious password controls when also the uh, multi factor authentication through a one time password and where we have diverged and we're not gone to with classic authentication software we've actually used a hash routine a uh, basically sha256 on the unique identifiers of the physician who is participating or running the trial hmm. and that rolls over and creates a different six character numeric or alpha numeric string which comes in as the one time password as you see most one time password there are four characters or something like that or six mm -hmm. using an eight character unless there is a deliberate wanton malicious uh destruction uh, you know the 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 structure main thing uh the third part is that um, we also from a structural perspective are doing what is called etmf or electronic trial master forms which in simple terms basically saying we want to keep all the records of a trial electronically together with our product so we've got basically two parts to it if a record is very large let's say a pet scan is a 1 terabyte of data that cannot be put into a blockchain right so that goes into a side chain but the written report to it is put into the blockchain embedded and linked so that if later there's an fda check or any auditors check like a qa check that tell me patient uh, 123 whose name is rao uh, we want to see their records we can retrieve that and show it together so that's the other part in the architecture and then the final part of the architectural design was trying to get the smart contract integrated into it you know so we're using chain code because that comes with the fabric hyperledger fabric and that's what we've used really to automate some of the processes 
In addition, as part of this, uh, we've got um, a peer-to-peer -peer payment uh, uh, API, which links up to another peer-to-peer -peer payment proce processor. In this case, it's uh, Stripe, which we have chosen for now to complete uh, the payment process. Quick question on that, actually, for the payments. So you're yeah. not, um, Blockcube doesn't have any sort of native tokens or cryptocurrency so, associated with it, does it? If you don't mind, let me address that at two levels. Sure. Yeah? Yeah. So first is, I did initially think of putting it into a crypto payment. And then I realized that if you're paying, let's say, a patient or a site with a, what is called a seen a volatile asset, it's not going to work. Yeah. The concept is still right. So right now we're still with fiat currencies. So now sure. comes the point in tokens. So um, given my finance background, I've been very focused that investors should be treated as investors. It doesn't matter whether they give $1 or $1,000 or hopefully $1 million at some stage in the evolution of our company. The So I did a... a course at MIT on blockchains, uh, and I really liked uh, Professor Chris Catalini there, and who educated me a lot amongst others on the virtues of token economics. So to me, there's a philosophical first construct. Are you using a token for a community build or are you using it for fundraising? If it is for fundraising, we get away from utility and get into a security token. The second part of it is, when is the right time to do it? A lot of people built vaporware, a white paper, and said, hey, I want to raise money. I've, I've got a you know, gut discomfort with that. And that, to me, is putting the cart before the horse. It's a bit like saying, hey, I built a great mousetrap. Trust me. And now I'm going to get tokens in order to show you how many mice I'm going to catch. My philosophy is I built a better mousetrap. I want to show it has worked. I want to catch that. And then we will get into the tokens. The last point about it is execution. We do have a strategy to go into tokens, and that would be more um, developed once we complete our seed round, you know? And that token would be to decentralize and empower the patients who are participating in trials. Hmm. And for now, you'll have to let me <laughs> stop at that. That's but I'll tell you informally, I'll be happy to share, but. Uh, Sure. It's a very cool idea that we have from what feedback we already got. Yeah, no, <laughs> it sounds interesting. I, I could see it being used as some sort of way to incentivize patients to you know, behave a certain way. Um, and I am looking forward to your paper that you are in the middle of getting uh -huh. peer-reviewed and published. So once you do have that ready, let me know. I'll tweet that pleasure. out to my following too. It'll be my pleasure. Thank you. Um, so... Really quick, just wondering on identity verification of the patients. Sure. Are you using any sort of third party to do identity verification? So uh, at this stage, we are not. Okay. We are not. And the reason is that what I've seen is um, um, the issue is not on verifying the identity of the person as much as ensuring that the same person doesn't do multiple trials. I see. You know, so uh, because you know what happens is Fraud prevention. Right. Well, fraud prevention, we've got some structures where you're assigning unique identifiers and then doing checks based on that. The On the first part, the patient sourcing and recruitment process, the enough software solutions that address that. So did, we didn't want to duplicate those efforts. Much later, when we get into the tokenization of the patient 
participation. That's where we are likely to put in an identification process or software. My bias where most of these are concerned is that let's each time strategically evaluate whether we should make or buy. If there is good off-the-shelf software available with the APIs, then I'd much rather integrate that into our system and run. But it will be needs to be blockchain-driven. That's the only consideration sure. there. You know? Yeah, no, that's very interesting. Um, can you talk to me about this idea of um, continuous clinical trial accounting and why that's important? Yeah, sure. So that's uh, a financial module that we have created and um, we have a you know a patent pending against it and this goes back to my experience both of implementing an sap module called accounting for clinical trial in novartis which is a pretty unique one as well as the visits i made to um, sites but i told you there's a white paper out there which talks about how difficult and painful this process but there are basically three problems we're trying to solve with this to be honest and uh, the first problem is what most people don't realize is finance departments in the sponsor or the pharma biotech company are equally stressed out hmm. because they've got to really do what is called accrual accounting, which is, you know, only accounting geeks would love it, you know. And by the way, we are writing up an accounting paper on that with the help of a, uh, an accounting professor, uh, you know, that I know. And we are writing up an accounting paper, which we want to send either to CFO or to the CPA magazine. So the beauty of blockchain is that we can do transaction-driven accounting and not period-based accounting. Namely, if you do an accounting in today's world, you do it at the end of a month, an end of a quarter, an end of whatever time period. But if our blockchain transaction has the SOX2 controls and integrity that we have, we can complete the accounting just like a pizzeria does at that moment. So what we've built into our, our, our module is exactly that. We want to get away from doing three things. One, delays in payments. So that gives a strategic benefit. One, to the physician. And secondly, if you're a pharma company and you're doing, let's say, a psoriasis drug, and there are four other drug companies doing psoriasis trials, then imagine who would the doctor work with, the guy who pays him first or the guy who pays him, you know, come to me after 60 days, 90 days. Yeah, so there's point. a strategic advantage there. And nowadays, if you see also innovation in, in drug development, a lot of people are doing something very similar. It's very, very close the race, which is why if you look at DTC advertising, you'll see a whole slew of drugs in similar categories, partly for that. Okay, That's my personal take on it. Now, hmm. the second part to it is that there's a complex reconciliation process. So sometimes a hospital will get a check just like if somebody were to give you a check at your home and say, uh, this is for all your utilities, water, power, and bill for the month of June. And they say, wait a minute, I've used gas, I want to know how much. And that's what often, you know, sites want. Which, because of transaction accounting, we can say, okay, patient A came for visit V1 in cycle C2, and your contract said that you'll give him or her $20 for travel, and $50 of participating. And that whole accounting record comes out through the C2ATA module. What you've also done is by exporting as a CSE file, we export it into, for example, SAP's FICO module, the accounting module. So the integration into accounting and the pharma can also take place. 
And then we reverse that, and then we basically display how much was the budget, how much have you spent. We all we also have some other cool ideas up our sleeve, but again, it goes back to my mousetrap solution that I want to basically demonstrate how that works. And we've called it continuous clinical trial accounting because only a blockchain allows that. It is more like a flow accounting rather than batch accounting, and it is transaction driven. So we don't have to accrue for anything because we have accounted for everything. So that's why we call it continuous clinical trial accounting. It's a very, uh, as I said, it's a very geeky accounting stuff, but it's one of the bugbears because you'll always see people saying, gee, I don't have money. It's not that you don't have money because money is either cash flow or how you're treated it in accounts. <laughs> right. And I think this idea of continuous uh, accounting is not just in healthcare now or clinical trials, but the idea can be you know, also used in exactly. the financial systems itself. Because right exactly. now, for example, you know, I pay taxes every year. That's once right. a year. But if I wish I can just pay on the go instead of having to wait. Right. And I don't want to have right. that uncertainty for a few months, you know. Right, before. right. In fact, there's a very nice article written by somebody saying precisely what you are, you know, hmm. arguing for. And uh, I'll after this, I'll send that to you. Yeah, but that. basically, uh, has talked about, and that was the trigger why I began thinking. Again, this is the engineer in me asking, why does this problem happen? Yeah. And then keep doing, you know, going back and back until you can no longer <laughs> solve it. And that's where I came across this article, which was on continuous flow accounting. And I said, yeah, we can make this happen. And that's why we have integrated everything here. Yeah, it definitely now, is a broader blockchain sort of uh, idea. Yeah. Because even Bitcoin, it reconciles all the exactly. every 10 minutes. Exactly. Instead of a, a bank does it every evening, right? Exactly. Every night when everyone's or, sleeping or something. Exactly, exactly. But there's another beautiful, uh, cool thing about our solution. I think we're 80% there, but a little later as we get to CBDCs, you know, like a digital dollar in the white paper, mm. we'll be ready with that. With mm -hmm. our solution then that's the cool part about it and and i don't want to say more because i'm excited about it but there's some pretty good business uh drivers also and the uh one of my uh, friends is uh, in a leading bank handles cards payments and all that and uh, this person kind of remarked i said uh, you know you're going to make my life really miserable won't you <laughs> <laughs> And it's not a matter of making any intermediate life miserable as much as going back to a basic uh, basic thrust that is accelerate, cut costs, because it benefits the patient Agreed. and saves lives. Well, actually, a question on during a clinical trial, a patient is required to either take a drug or get the injection or whatever you know they're testing. And do you think your platform will also help to increase or improve the patient adherence yeah. to the, taking the drug? Mm -hmm. I think so. I had, we were having a discussion with, um, I shall have to leave the name of the organization confidential, but an organization that treats, uh, which is like a breast cancer foundation, like Conan Foundation, but focuses on a very rare disease in female children of a neurological variety, mm. you know? Okay. And because our system is running on an iPad and is easy to understand for the pay, the uh, caregiver, which is very often the mother in this case, they were very thrilled seeing what this was happening. Now, patient adherence or in clinical trials is also often described as dropout, often takes place when you have to be logistical issues also to be managed. 
and by taking our trial to the patient, we believe that patient adherence is more than likely to improve. Mm -hmm. And when I asked for some quick feedback from this parent who had a child in the, having that uh, disease, and she was pushing the organization to find ways of using our platform, mm -hmm. you know, because she was so convinced that this would be of help. Uh, not just in a COVID time period, even in a normal time period. So now if you just dial back and just think about the earlier point I made about somebody, let's say there's a VA, uh, the person on a VA system who is struggling with some uh, illness in rural, uh, let's say North Carolina, or rural West Virginia, and the person has come to a tertiary care center, mm -hmm. you know, with, for example, telemedicine that you were speaking about earlier on, and a clinical trial system that takes the trial to the patient, there's a greater likelihood both of enrollment and adherence because we're taking all the logistics issues out of the way, you know? Yeah, the enrollment yeah. part as well too, that's a good point. Um... And that's that's it. Because as you know, as you can imagine, uh, a lot of patients are, are I've seen some uh, uh, statistics about this, but a lot of patients decide to participate in trials partly because their doctor says so. So the doctor is then in that facility there in a rural area with telemedicine convincing the person. And then the logistics is taken up by using our system, for example. It will make a huge difference. That's our hypothesis there, you know? Yeah. And, and very frankly, we've done this in, in diabetes in India, which is, my God, it's in this rural India, it's a very infrastructurally deficient place. You know, and if you can do that in 150 homes where people are mothers looking after children or parents or fathers who cannot go to work, you know, um, and they didn't have to come to the main hospital, which was about 20 kilometers away. And by the way, 20 kilometers in rural India is like going about 60 miles in, you know, in the U.S. I, I have a strong belief that uh, the adherence will improve dramatically. Yeah, I, I tend to agree with you there for sure. And especially if you start uh, introducing any sort of incentive mechanisms with tokens and things exactly. like that, that can create exactly. new dynamics exactly. completely. Yeah. That and also with IoT devices, you know. So we've mm -hmm. not again gone into IoT devices also. That's but then point. once we get into edge computing and link that up together, then it will be a whole new world. But again, like I said, um, I'm, I'm just a strong believer. Let me demonstrate my mousetrap catches mice. Very One step at a time. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. So I'd like to learn more about, you know, I'm sure clinical trials, obviously very heavily regulated. What sort of benefits do you provide to regulators, FDA, oh. other ones that are, you know, right now they conduct audits for research. So, oh. yeah. So the first thing, as you are, uh, you know, blockchain is the auditability is so strong of the immutable data. And we actually have an auditor's module where every transaction is going to an audit module. The second thing we've done is we're taking you through the normal validation check so that we'll be 21 CFR compliant, you know. But to me, those, those are all tactical benefits and they're necessary, you know, don't get me wrong. But let's say tomorrow there's an audit taking place on informed consent. I've already explained how that would then should pass muster this. But at a much higher strategic level, if you, the question we need to ask ourselves as practitioners in this area is, at some stage, we will have to give 
not just real world uh, evidence, not just real data, but in real time, just like the SEC can see financial data. Mm. And to me, that's really possible only, I mean, I might be wrong, in a blockchain system where one of the nodes is then set up with the regulators. Okay. So at some stage, we will have to come to grips with it, the pros and cons, and there are lots of questions still there. Uh, and there may be some other easier methods to handle it, which I don't know. But I think it's a bit like how auditors would approach, let's say, somebody saying, I'm using SAP for my accounting, inventory management, etc. Now The guests go there with a sense of comfort that the system is right. They just have, they obviously have to check it out and they can focus on some of the strategic parts of it. Similarly, I believe if we get to, you know, whether it's a DSCA or it's anything like that, when you get to a system where all the key stakeholders have a distributed node in a decentralized way, then the real-time data flows would potentially allow even faster drug approvals and equally protect patients even faster. And then if you then take it to the next level where everybody can see the data appropriately with appropriate controls, there's nothing to stop with an innovative Taiwanese researcher finding a COVID-19 solution based on data gathered in West Virginia, for example, because he or she might see just that bit which somebody else has missed. And then it becomes a really a global system, a global platform in real time, solving global issues, hopefully at, at a much faster speed. Yeah, there's the idea of open science and that you can Correct. sort of contribute Correct. to that. You know. Correct. Correct. And also, it just goes back to my first point, the point of trust, because a lot of people believe that um, some pharma companies will not uh, share all the data, you know, because mm -hmm. some data may be. Um, so if you get into that open source kind of collaboration, then the data will be all open and uh, hopefully the speed of innovation will be much faster. Got it. Uh, so, you know, as a startup, obviously you want to think about well, I guess not really, obviously, but I'm sure you want to think about a way to sustain yourself, pay your employees sure. and make money. Uh, what is sure. the current business model and do you see that sure. changing? So currently, our business model basically would be is being driven by two things, direct and indirect sales. Yeah, that's the structure we're setting up. On indirect sales, uh, we're still in an early phase, but the thoughts that we've been having discussions with, with shall we say, with a very large corporation is to have us listed on their marketplace so that if there's, let's say, uh, a medical school in, uh, um, let's say, North Texas, they can just go onto their marketplace and select us and continue the process. So that's let's, an indirect method. We're also talking to some other people who could potentially be our resellers. And that would be a model we'd use, let's say, especially OUS, you know, where the second model, which is more a B2B process, uh, which would be targeting more the mid-sized pharma and biotech companies. So the large guys have already way ahead on their innovation curve. You know, they've got the EDC, they've got the structures all in place, and we may not be able to give them the incremental benefit that would warrant uh, disruption of their existing systems, you know, where they may have spent hundreds of millions of dollars. The second category, third category that we want to go with is also with low income solutions 
for institutions like the WHO or UNICEF, where they're doing, let's say, a female uh, study or some sort of pediatric study. So those are the three categories that we are working with right now. You know, mm-hmm. our goals in the COVID-19 uh, are relatively modest because you really don't know what will happen. What we have seen is that most corporations have paused clinical trials. They have uh, reassessing how they should do it. So waiting for the dust to settle around that. But in the meantime, uh, what we have tried to do is one, of course, get the HIT virtual certification, which gives people confidence. So when you're talking to people about your solution, what are some of the technical and social adoption challenges do you think you're seeing? Um, the first is, I would say, not even before technical and social, is more psychological, like, hey, this is a new startup, and people conflate blockchain with Bitcoin mm-hmm. and Bitcoin with uh, crypto fraud. So, hey, uh, to offset that, luckily, I have the industry experience and the credibility that offsets that part. Mm-hmm. The technical challenge has been, uh, and I've already experienced this, is that people always wonder that if you got a slice of the complete clinical trial process, how does your software fit in with their larger systems? And anticipating that, that's why we have a collaboration with Entity Data, which is an $18 billion corporation from a systems integration standpoint. Because they got the horsepower, muscle power, uh, firepower, intellectual power to go to any corporation's ERP system and see that we fit into it. So that's the uh, strategic step we've taken. The third thing, technically speaking, is, and uh, Gartner in their hype cycle report had a very good uh, conversation around this. I think we who are uh, blockchain enthusiasts often make the mistake of talking to our customers from a blockchain perspective. And that, with all due respect, is wrong. Mm-hmm. Because if I'm an automotive engineer, I might get excited between a Wankel engine or an inline engine or a V uh, engine. But if I'm a consumer of a car, I'm interested in maybe safety, you know, reliability, you know, whatever, the brand appeal, etc. So we've got to go with what is it going to do for their clinical trial space and not what is under the hood. Mm-hmm. So that's a pivot also that I had to make because like any early entrepreneurs, I got so excited and I quickly realized I had to pivot. So now I don't even talk about blockchain at all, unless we're talking to the IT people or somebody is asking, well, why do you say your quote-unquote data is immutable or quote-unquote is cryptographically secure? Then we go to it. Then in terms of the social piece, uh, clinical trial management systems are a peculiarly complex system to be sold because they're basically four key stakeholders in most of these games most of these um, sessions. There's, of course, the clinical operations people who execute the trial, the clinical medical people who don't want their study to be damaged in any way. So if you dial back to maybe 15, 20 years, everybody would buy an IBM computer because nobody got fired for buying IBM. Right, right? safe, sure. So totally safe. So that's the other part. And then there are two parts. One is the uh, CIO who wants to know whether you're going to create another chaos for his spaghetti junction or what have you. And then another person is the CFO who is basically trying to see how much trial. So you've got to be uh, a little balanced about all these four stakeholders. And that's part of our challenge and part of our process. Now, that's layered with, of course, a risk averse industry. Having said that, what the beauty of COVID-19 has been 
if we can see beauty in such a painful situation is that people are realizing that we cannot do drug trials the way we did before and expect to survive hmm. and so this is a classic burning platform that has come and i'm hopeful that that rising tide will take innovative technologies like ours also forward can you describe the competitive landscape and any sure. direct competitors to your business sure 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 so imagine there's a 4x4 grid uh, ray um, on one axis there are siloed system another categories integrated systems on one axis you know like and on the other axis is quote unquote old technology and new technology now people who are very similar to us have nobody by the way has gone into the blockchain for clinical trial management system so at this stage we are relatively unique people have gone into blockchain in the clinical space you know either we like patientory with patient ledgers then there is a company called my ire which has done a great job in terms of looking at data integrity in research you know or um, there is a couple of other companies which then there is a companies which are still working with static centralized data lakes or databases but using you know either iot or using you know um, iphones and and uh, phone devices like science 37 etc so these are what i would call the kind of pool of competitors that we have who are using innovation and technology to create a space for themselves then you've got challenging competitors who can turn on a dime like uh, oracle or ibm etc mm. who for them to switch into a blockchain driven solution would be very simple but currently they have not gone down that path you know uh so that's the big thing and then there are the big systems people like viva for example there is you know clinic there are a host of others this is at the end of the day a 10 billion dollar industry the ctms software industry and um uh there is room for a lot of players doing a lot of different things and of course if you've just invested 200 million dollars on a centralized database coupled with you know um, you know computers all over the place you know when it's you know throw that out in a minute and say i'm going to go with something different yeah no that's fair i, I totally agree and i think you know 10 billion dollars split up you know it could be many different companies in that space yeah exactly so the way we look at it is that the going back to your earlier point of the value proposition and the business model we believe we are competing in a fundamentally dynamic and business wise rich space that is a place where we can develop our niche and grow based on that you know mm-hmm. and the uh, rewards will be pretty significant very cool um so i have a couple more I guess personal or fun questions for you. Sure. Oh, that's so scary. <laughs> <laughs> so, if you had to have a microchip implanted, you know, we we're talking about you yeah. know, IoT and sensors, where would you want it to be implanted on your body? Hmm. Yeah. Um I think I would still have it in my brain, you hmm. know. and uh like neuralink uh, like yeah uh, exactly exactly 
you know, I told you earlier on about 30, 40 years back, I had a, a bit of a brain tumor problem and it got fixed. But, you know, it made you really wonder at the brain as an organ, you know. Um, you know, it doesn't feel pain, but every whatever nanometer, millimeter of it controls some aspect. And the brain is really the brain, if you look at the complexity, what it achieves. And it does that with, as an engineer, I'm fascinated by the electrical discharge that drive all these processes out. It's amazing. Sitting at, <laughs> sitting at Lilly, where um, when I was in the early stage at Lilly, we just launched Prozac, so had the, uh, the uh, could see it at close quarters in discussions and actually visited with reps, psychiatrists. Uh, you realize how quickly its absence can turn, you know, a very strong body, which is an execution machine, into mush, you know. Hmm. So if tomorrow that microchip was there, it could tell, well, you know, this is what you're kind of doing or not doing or should do and would do and be a backup for any redundant processes or failures, yeah, that'd be cool. I obviously don't want people to be able to read what I'm seeing on the microchip. I don't want people that much uh, transparency. <laughs> right. It's got to be 100% secure as well. And only right. you'd have access. Otherwise, you know, right. you'd become a... Hack into it. <laughs> exactly. They can control your body. Can you imagine something like that? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> um, who is your favorite scientist of all time? Hmm. That's interesting. So, if you don't mind, I'd like to split that with three people, you know. Sure. Uh, the first is, I would say, with Norman Borlaug. You know, Norman Borlaug was the father of the Green Revolution and helped to introduce uh, genetically modified seeds, which were disease-resistant, etc., and basically saved millions as an understatement. I think hundreds of millions of people, you know. Mm. Uh, so that's one of the first. Uh, then there is another person, an Indian scientist, uh, who um, who won the Nobel Prize also, C.V. Uh, Raman, who built up the Raman spectroscopic effect and, oh, yeah. uh, in, in uh, science. And what has been amazing for me is his ability to take complex thoughts and put it together in a simple perspective and use very simple instrumentation in a resource deficient area like India was ages back, not that it is very, and still going to win the Nobel Prize and creates a path breaking kind of processes. And then finally, of course, it is the famous Princeton scientist, Albert Einstein, who's owned by the world. Hmm. <laughs> so that's how I would kind of spread that around. I think those are <laughs> amazing answers, actually. I really appreciate that. and. You know, speaking of Raman spectrometry uh, yeah. and India and how India is very resourceful in general. When I was doing my MBA, I actually went to India right. for two weeks. Oh, wow. I, yeah, I did like a oh, cool. field seminar there. So we visited oh, multiple wow. healthcare related companies and hospitals and we talked to their executives. So that was a really eye opening opportunity. Wow, pretty cool. Yeah. And one thing I did learn, and I wrote about this for my class paper, was the idea of Jugad and how yeah. <laughs> Indians are very um, smart, innovative. In, innovative. They can figure out, they can create an engine out of rubber bands, you know, kind of thing. <laughs> right, 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 right. 
Well, you know, if you so interested, there is actually uh, uh, an associate professor of bioengineering, biomedical engineering, who's gone back. I think he was from Portland, Oregon, and then he went back to India and settled down. And he's made something called the Swastia tablet, which mm. we also would like to look at independently. And what it basically does is it goes, can be taken, it's a tablet, an Android-based, and it basically takes about 15 or 20 uh, measurements. So it does the kind of like the bio measurements, blood measurements, and cholesterol measurements, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Hmm. He's basically arguing that if he has that in a rural health center, you can kind of nail it, then we tell him medicine kind of do it. And I'm very impressed by the way he conceptualized and build that together. So that's something that I would suggest. But to me, the ideal one was, um, I was watching a video clip of uh, a construction site, which was, they were building it to, I think, the four stories height. So I guess that would be about 30, 40 feet. And what would you expect over here? You'd straight away expect a kind of like a small elevator and what have you. And so this guy basically jerry-rigged his uh, Vespa scooter. So he took out the wheel. And as you're an engineer, you'll see. So the driver is still coming from the, 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 the scooter, Vespa engine. Uh-huh. the Vespa engine. But the wheel was not on the axle. And on that, he had mounted a pulley. And the pulley was connected to another set of pulleys that was basically lifting and lowering a hmm. small bucket full of cement. So he just used the motor of the Vespa to, the to, to create an elevator. <laughs> right. That's awesome. That's pretty cool. So <laughs> That is cool. Yeah. So frankly, that's also in a way how I've approached this to say, well, let's try to use a little bit of innovation and not just automatically assume that uh, you know we need to have complex systems. Because you know the beauty of the blockchain and the whole system is not here also with all due respect. Let's not just fast forward to 20 years down the road mm-hmm. and then sit back and say we're having these uh, trials, which are famously called N equals one. Mm-hmm. Basically, today's clinical trial is basically saying I need to have a biostatistical kind of power of the test. So I need to take a patient sample that will be representative of the universe. And so I've got 200 people. But as you know, only too well in this 200, that might be skewed with maybe a lot of Caucasians. It may be skewed some other way. And ethnic uh, diversity is very important in order to get a proper picture. Now, what if we had to then take cell and gene therapy and then say we need to do trials of N equals 1? That means you do one trial. Now, if you look today, as it is, we're doing almost 5,000 new trials on clintrials.gov. You know? Mm-hmm. Then you can imagine if you're doing trials of N equals 1. It's... I hypothesize mm-hmm. that our current systems will break. It'll be like sailing, you know, the U.S.'s enterprise up the Hudson to get to Montreal, you know? <laughs> and so we'll have to go to light and agile systems that have proper governance, corporate structures. And I see in the current world with current technologies, the blockchain playing a very critical role in that. And cautiously optimistic that somebody like BlockCube can also develop a solution for that. Rama, I totally agree. And I think that was um, a great way to sort of end this podcast, uh-huh. actually. For the audience, do you have anything else you want to mention before we uh, conclude here? I yeah. think this was an amazing interview. Thank you so uh, much for your time. No, thank you, Ray. I think for the audience, I would basically say uh, a couple of things, you know. Um, well, take a look at our uh, website, BlockCube. It's a very simple blo- uh, website, which basically talks about. There's some interesting videos over there. 
So we are interested in um, basically demonstrating that the blockchain has end users beyond the publicly known Bitcoin kind of uh, crypto frauds or stuff like that, where people have um, gone the wrong way. But I think fundamentally, the world can be changed and made a better place if you use innovation in an intelligent way with today's technology. You know, and that's our goal. Saving awesome. patients' lives. Hey, all you cyberpunk health warriors and nimble digital disruptors. Check out healthunchained.org. And remember to subscribe to Health Unchained on Stitcher, SoundCloud, Google Play, and iTunes. Join the Health Unchained community on our Telegram group, t.me slash healthunchained. If you enjoyed this episode, tell your friends, your bosses, your teams, your students, to listen and subscribe. Thank you.